0: Well, friends, as we continue to go through this hour in worship, we go to God's Word right now, and we find ourselves in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Daniel called Faithful in the Fire. And if you've missed any of these, I encourage you after the service to go to our YouTube channel. Simply look for Bel Air Church on YouTube. Get caught up in the sermon series. A little backstory as to what we're talking about here. Uh, There is this reality that the nation of Israel uh, is facing when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire has defeated them. And in 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar takes 10,000 individuals, brings them to Babylon, and ultimately wants to annihilate God's people through assimilating them into the Babylonian culture. He wants to conform them into the image of the Babylonian worldview in its beliefs, in its way of life, and its perspectives on God's and, and a call on their life and who they are in relationship to all that. And ultimately, we find ourselves in this fourth week of this sermon series realizing that the fires that those Jewish people faced back then are the same fires that we face today. And the fires of social conformity is a hot one. Because ultimately, as we live our lives as followers of Jesus, We live in a world where there are cultural norms, there are perspectives, there are beliefs, there are ways of life that in many ways go against God's heart for humanity that are contradictory to the way of Jesus. So how do we navigate this in our schools? How do we navigate this in our workplaces? And as we've been saying every single week, God is calling us not to fight the fires, Sometimes we're tempted simply just to fight, fight, fight culture. That's not what God calls us to do. Nor are we called to fear the fires and separate and avoid. Uh, Nor are we called to simply just try to get away from. But God has called us to be faithful up to and even in the midst of the fires. So we're going to jump right in here to Daniel chapter 3. And every single week, we've used this framework of a literal fire, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego find themselves in to understand the seven different metaphorical fires that are found in the book of Daniel. And this moment, the fire of social conformity happens just before the physical fire of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And right now in this middle sermon in the seven week series, we're going to cover not just the fire of social conformity, but connect to, as we've done every single week, that physical fire that they were faithful in. Let me read for us Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, you will fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down, whoever does not worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, all the people's Nations and languages, they fell down and they worshiped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, these pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. This, my friends, includes the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. So there was a metaphorical fire that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced before they face the physical and literal fire that we will get to in a moment in Daniel chapter three. And that metaphorical fire is the fire of social conformity. And that social conformity had the potential to not only damage and destroy and burn, but also to incinerate their commitment to God, their faithfulness in God, their following of God, God's call on their life. And they were faithful in that fire. You see, though, this is also in Daniel 3 where there's that literal fire, like I just said a moment ago, we have to distinguish between the two, that they actually were faithful in the fire of social conformity long before they were faithful in the physical fire of the fiery furnace. And we will find ourselves in the same situations. How do we navigate in a world where perhaps we might say, If I I put into practice the way of Jesus, I might not get a promotion. I have to do this thing in order to get the job, to get the part, to be liked, to be accepted. And to do that thing might be contrary to the life that God calls me to. There's been study after study after study done that actually takes a look at how people were raised. And these studies take a look at different topics and they talk about how the uh, family of origin has a perspective on a particular topic that is uh, very different than another cohort's family of origins perspective on that topic. And they find, for example, I'll give one example, uh, that in a household that believes you know, sex is something that uh, is about personal expression, that there, there's no need to wait until marriage, that, it, that it's something that you should do if it feels good. If you're raised in that household, they, they've studied your actual practices throughout life. And they compared to a cohort that's raised perhaps in a more conservative, perhaps more traditional, perhaps a more religious, whatever religious perspective that might be, household that you were raised in a perspective that says you have to wait. You have to be committed. You have to be in the covenant of marriage, whatever it might be. And they found that despite two very different backgrounds that essentially these individuals, as they go out into the world, when they face the pressures of the world, when they face the, the social norms of the war, world, that essentially there is almost a negligible difference between the two and how they express themselves sexually. In other words, what all the data suggests is that society is more powerful than your family of origin. That as we move out in this world, regardless of how you are raised, you will find yourself in the marketplace of ideas. And the gravitational pull of society is so strong that I'll say it this way. It has the potential to incinerate God's call, God's heart, God's design for our life. So how do we navigate it? Well, there's three things I see in this passage in the beginning of Daniel 3 are the same three things that we're going to face today in the midst of society. And I believe that these three things help us understand and navigate how we can be faithful in the fire. The first is the separation between our public and our private lives. Second is the power of the statue. And the third is the love that can never be lost. So the separation of public and private, I see it here and I see it in the world. There is this sense on one hand in this passage that we don't hear a decree that you have to act a certain way in private, but rather you have to act a certain way in public. Very clearly there was this statue built on the plains of Dora where everybody could see. And there was like this giant orchestra ensemble that whenever it would play, like like musical chairs or something, you had to bow down to this golden statue. Again, the decree was, this is how you have to act in public. And it seems like, though not explicit, it seems like implied, however you wanna act in private, that's on your time. But this is what you have to do in public. And again, this wasn't just the Babylonians and a few of the Jewish people mixed in. This is the height of the Babylonian empire. We see here in this language that there's all peoples, all nations, all languages. The spread of the Babylonian Empire was at its greatest right now. This was a a magnificent, magnificent and powerful empire. If you know anything about the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of them was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was not only the most powerful person on the planet back then, but he would make the top 50, maybe top 25 most powerful Rich, influential people in world history. And so I see back then this separation between how you're supposed to act in public and how you're free to act in private. And I see that in our world today. I get the sense, and I'm speaking from my context here in 2022 in Los Angeles, in California, in the United States. And I think this is true of all cultures around the globe, that there's this sense, especially in the West, where Do what you want on your own time. Believe what you want behind closed doors. You're free to do whatever you want, but when you come to work, when you come to class, when you come to the public arena, when you're out in public, this is how we want you to act. And in the same way, what's so interesting back then is that this statue, it doesn't have a particular name it has this sense that it represents the entirety of the Babylonian worldview, the entirety of the Babylonian way of life. And so though people might privately believe in different things and have different practices at home, when they gathered in the public square, there needed to be conformity. And that's why this was such a great fire. That's why for them, they needed to be faithful in the fire. And notice they didn't fight the fire, They didn't fear the fire, they didn't avoid the fire, they were faithful in the fire. And even in the public square, their faith, they couldn't keep private because they knew that the life that God called them to wasn't just a private faith, it was a way of life. They knew that in every single area of their life, how they talk, how they walk, how they dress, how they eat, how they interact with others, how they view themselves, how they view their work, how they view God, how they view people different than them, how they view other believers, was an all-encompassing, fully-encompassed, saturated way of life. And they couldn't separate their private faith from their public expression. And today, we have a choice. Do we keep our faith private or do we live our faith out in the public square? You know, what's interesting is that right now there is this, uh, there's this perspective. It could be summed up this way, that all truth is valid. And there is this sense that the dominant worldview in culture today is that uh, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and it doesn't matter uh, as long as we acknowledge that when we gather together that no one of us can make an exclusive truth claim. There is no absolute truth, culture says. But the remarkable thing when you think about it is that that claim that there is no absolute truth is actually an absolute truth claim. Because to say There is no absolute truth, by definition, is an absolute truth. And to have a perspective that says there is no absolute truth and all truth claims are valid falls apart when one person comes forward and says, I have the truth. And I've noticed that actually in pluralistic societies, actually they're very rigid. That they're actually not very inclusive they're only inclusive to people who also define inclusivity the same way. They're only inviting to the people who have the same particular perspective. And what's so remarkable is that there is this contradiction that we have to be sober enough to say that any truth claim, in a sense, is an absolute truth claim. The question is, which one is true? And so this leads to the second point, the power of the statue. Again, take a look. It says that whenever, verse seven, the peoples, not just some, not just the Babylonians, when all the peoples, who are the peoples? This could be millions of people from various faith backgrounds, different nations that the Babylonian empire had conquered and was now assimilating. All the peoples, when they heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages, they fell down and worshiped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Talk about power. Power. You know, something lacks power when it lacks the ability to move somebody else. It has power when it has the ability to move people, to change their behavior, to conform them to something. If I can mix metaphors here, the gravitational pull of this idol, the gravitational pull of this statue had the ability to catch every single person in its orbit. And the same was true for them, and the same is true for us today. And so in the same way that the powerful idol back then had this gravitational pull to cause everybody to be caught in its orbit, there is this gravitational pull of society today. Whatever society you live in that has the gravitational pull to cause you to be caught in its orbit. And we have a choice. Will we allow it to cause us to fall down and worship it? Maybe not a physical statue, but do we worship our culture? Or do we faithfully follow God into our culture? Now, again, the first point, there is this temptation to keep our public expression separate from our private faith. And whenever we feel as we move out in the world, you know, I've got to keep my faith To myself, I just, you know, I got to, I got to tow the company line. I've got to do this to get ahead. I've got to say this to get the part. I've got to act this way. I've got to post this on social media to be accepted, to be liked, to not lose my influence. Whenever we do that, essentially what we're doing is we're bowing to our culture. In the same way that all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages bowed to that idol, essentially we are doing the same thing. There could be movements that move throughout our nation, move throughout our world. There could be different worldviews. And if we get caught up in those things without asking God, God, is this from you? I love how in 1 John it says, the test the Spirit's to test, to test, to test, to seek, to understand, is this from God? When we don't do that and we keep our faith private and we just kind of go the ways of the world, left and right and up and down, in a sense, we are bowing down to, we get stuck in the gravitational pull of the idols of our culture. And I love how the word uh, gravity And weight actually plays itself out in the Hebrew language. And it's the word kabod. You see, we translate that word kabod into the word glory. And what's interesting is that everything, every idea, in a sense, has glory. It has weight to it. It has matter to it. It has significance to it. And as you study world cultures, as you look throughout world history, as you look throughout the the ebbs and flows of society's views, We give more weight to certain perspectives and over time, perhaps the weight or the glory of those perspectives begins to wane. And ultimately, there is this sense that what we give most weight to, what we believe is most significant, what essentially we believe is the most important thing, by definition, is what we come to love. And this leads to the third point, to love something that can never be lost. You see, as we move through our life, I believe, and we'll get much deeper into this next week in the fires of discernment, that what we love actually changes how we think, how we speak, how we see. That there's not this competition between our mind and our heart, and we have to choose between the two, but an actual fact that every human being We behold things, we love things, we are captivated by things, and we, in a sense, live our lives in pursuit of that primary love and what we behold, we become. And what the Babylonian empire was trying to do was to cause them to love the Babylonian culture more than anything, and ultimately, Speaking to extremes, which scripture often does to make a point, King Nebuchadnezzar gives them a choice. Do you love the Babylonian culture or do you love your life? You see, that's the most extreme option you could lay out. He doesn't say, do you love Babylonian culture or do you love your job? Which can be in some cases, What's at stake? He didn't say, do you love uh, the Babylonian culture or your good reputation, which is sometimes for us, what's at stake? He goes beyond that. He says, do you love the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian way of life, the Babylonian worldview, or do you love your life? Because if you don't bow down to this, you will lose your life. And what's so remarkable is that Shadrach, Meshach, and then Bednego had a love that couldn't be lost. And the love that they had was different than the rest of the peoples. Who I believe at the end of the day, what they loved the most was their life. They loved their life more than anything. And to preserve their life, they made decisions. To preserve their life, they chose to forsake in the public arena, perhaps their private faith that they had had for generations. Again, this was multiple nations that had now been conquered by the Babylonian king. They sacrificed all of that because they loved something greater and that something greater was their life. And yet Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they loved something more than their life and it was their Lord. And ultimately they were willing to lose their life because they knew that they couldn't lose the one that they loved and that was God. And this led them into the fiery furnace. We've been talking about this each week. Remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were faithful in the fire of social conformity. They didn't keep their faith private. They expressed their faith publicly that caused them not to bow down and worship the Babylonian gods or this false image. They knew the power of the Babylonian culture but they didn't allow the gravitational pull of any other love, even the love of their own life to cause them to get caught up in that. They loved something greater that they couldn't lose and that was God's self. And they find themselves now before King Nebuchadnezzar and King Nebuchadnezzar is furious, verse 13. And he commands Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to be brought in. So they brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, it is true. O Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I've made, well and good, I'm giving you one last chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Very clearly, King Nebuchadnezzar noticed that they had a view in private that was now moving into the public realm that was causing them not to get caught up in the gravitational pull of the Babylonian way of life. And King Nebuchadnezzar goes before them and says, you have a choice. You either love your life or you love your way of life because what God can save you from this choice? and the answer is remarkable. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. We talked about this week ago. Uh, A remarkable truth that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't flustered. They didn't need to defend themselves. They didn't love being right more than their love for God. They loved God more than anything. And they knew that their God would provide for them, would care for them. And they said this, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire and out of your hand, O King, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. This bears repeating, I'm saying this every single week. They had faith in God more than their faith in what God could do for them. You see, our love can be not just for God's self, but we can begin to love the life that we think God has promised us. We can begin to love God's blessings, God's provision, And when we lose our job, when our health fails, when we have setbacks financially, emotionally, when we lose loved ones, if we love the blessings more than the blesser, we begin to get caught up in the gravitational pull of that and we begin to conform to this sense that God doesn't long for us to conform into, but we conform to this idea that I deserve God's blessings because look what I've done for you. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they loved God more than what God would provide. And they said, God can save us, but even if God doesn't, we're still gonna worship our God. King Nebuchadnezzar's furious. We've been talking about this each week. And if you haven't heard, he orders the fire, heated up seven times hotter than normal. He throws them into the fire. And then something amazing happens. He gets up and he cannot believe what he sees. Not just three men, but four Four men are unbound walking in the middle of the fire and the fourth one looks like a God. We've been saying every single week that all the evidence points that the one who's in the fire with them is the pre-incarnate son of God. This is Jesus, 600 years before he was born. If you want more explanation, go back to the first week when we started Faithful in the Fire series, the fire of another kingdom. I dive deep into that. But the remarkable truth is that they have this love for God that cannot be lost even when they're willing to lose their life. And God's strategy to save them isn't to fight the fire, isn't to cause them to avoid the fire. He meets them in the fire. And they come out of the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar pulls them out, and he cannot believe what he sees. They're not burned. Their clothes are not singed. There's not even the smell of smoke coming from them. This powerful fire that burned the guards as they were in the haste throwing them in had no power over them. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, there is no other God that saves like your God. He sent his angel to rescue you who is the ultimate angel of the Lord. This is Jesus the Christ, the pre-incarnate son of God who meets us in the fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar begins to turn his heart, turn his faith away from the Babylonian gods. That just prior, he was saying, everybody bow down and worship. He begins to put his faith in the God of the Bible. The fires are real out there. The power of culture is massive out there. There's a pressure to keep your faith private. But something remarkable can happen in your life and in other people's lives when you faithfully follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And the way of Jesus is never judgmental. The way of Jesus is never prideful. The way of Jesus is never controlling. The way of Jesus is never revengeful or self-righteous. And sadly, self-proclaimed Christians so often misrepresent Jesus when they go out in the world as judgmental, as self-righteous, as being right and you're wrong. And I never see Jesus. I never see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I never see Daniel doing that. They have a level of respect, of authority, of being in the midst of culture in the world, but not of it. And ultimately the one whom they love is the living God, the one who never lets them go. And I believe that there's an opportunity for us to realize that social conformity isn't just out there in the world, but sometimes social conformity can sometimes be here in the church. And we can depart away from having God as our ultimate love, and we can begin to elevate rules, we can begin to elevate behaviors, we can begin to uh, elevate this is how you're supposed to live as a follower of Jesus over and above a Lordship of Jesus played out in your life, faithfully following Him. And we have to be very careful not to be conformed to this world, but we also need to be very careful not to be conformed to religiosity. In fact, it seems like Jesus, He condemns the religious leaders more than He condemns the pagan culture. Both immorality and morality are strong pulls away from faith in our loving God. We're called to repent, not just from our unrighteousness, but also from our self-righteousness. The book of Romans says that we all fall short. We're all in desperate need of God. And when we realize that we can only be conformed, not through our good deeds, we can only be conformed, not through us striving to just be better, but we can only be conformed to the power of the Holy Spirit, When we come in brokenness and say, I fall short, I'm desperate, I need you. I'm part of the problem in the world. I'm part of the problem in society. I'm part of the problem in my family. I'm part of the problem in my workplace. Jesus, conform me. And we can begin to live out what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this rule, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For this is an acceptable act of worship. Worship. Worship means you simply give worth of your time, of your energy, of your focus, of your love. And what you love the most, that's what you worship. And what you worship, you become. Let us worship the one whom can never be lost, who never loses us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love. And I thank you that you enter into the fires of our lives faithfully out of love for us, Even when we had our backs to you, you came to this world. You demonstrated the most beautiful way to live. You brought the margins in. You dismantled religiosity. You dismantled legalism. And you brought your life full of both grace and truth. Jesus, you laid down your life for us, having lived the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve, but defeating death giving us your record, your righteousness. May we, through faith alone, be conformed more and more in the image of you, Jesus, through the power of your spirit, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.